Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 147, The Conspiracy of the Crazies, 1476 to 1478. I don't think I would be shocking anyone if I said that in the Middle Ages, they didn't have WhatsApp groups or news apps to find out what was going on. What they did have were bells, both in church and civil administration towers, and they had different sounds for different purposes. One bell would tell everyone it was a festive day, another that someone had been born, was getting married, or had died. In late 15th century Florence, there was a bell which, like many others, had its own name, Martinella, which would ring from the Arnolfo Tower on top of Palazzo Vecchio. You can actually still hear Martinella to this day if you visit Florence. Back then, she was the bell that was used to call the citizens of Florence to the square, sometimes also to protect the city. And on the 26th of April, 1478, it rang as if it would come tumbling out of the tower. Little did the citizens know that the events that were unfolding in different areas, inside and outside the city, were part of one of the most infamous plots in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, the Pazzi Conspiracy. We last left off Florence and the Medici, with tensions rising between Lorenzo de' Medici and Pope Sixtus IV. We saw in particular how Lorenzo had refused to lend Sixtus the money for him to buy the city of Imola for his nephew Girolamo Riario. In response, the Pope had handed over the papal finances to the Pazzi family, the great rivals of the Medici. Their surname, in modern Italian, means crazy. On the 18th of February, 1477, Lorenzo made sure that a new decree on inheritance was passed and, by Pure chance, that same decree blocked the Pazzi family from putting their hands on quite a fortune. The voices in Rome, intent on getting rid of Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano, got louder. In that same year, a meeting was held in Rome, and if you wanted to be cool and in with the anti-Medici crowd, you had to be there. The Pope was, Girolamo Riario was, Francesco de Pazzi was, but we had clergymen and bankers and needed a man who knew how to use violence effectively. So it was that Giovan Battista di Montesecco was called in. His later testimony seems to be the only source we have for the meeting. He mentions that Pope Sixtus IV was very much in favour of a regime change in the Republic of Florence, but actually killing the Medici brothers was a big no-no. It was to be, in his opinion, a bloodless coup. Montesecco came away from the meeting a little bit confused, but Riario would later convince him that the Pope would go along with everything they decided. So Montesecco set off on his exploratory mission. He headed to Florence and actually met with Lorenzo, 
then with Francesco Pazzi, and the head of the household, Jacopo Pazzi. As the plan took form, the external situation continued to evolve. The Duke of Urbino, Federico da Montefeltro, started talks with Ferdinand of Naples to get the reign on the side of an anti-Medici alliance with the Pope. Lorenzo once again moved to block Sixtus's expansion in the Romagna area by supporting a certain Fortebraccio for the succession of the city of Faenza. For the conspirators, the problem was getting both of the Medici brothers together at the same time. Otherwise, whichever of the two survived could use the death of his brother as a rallying call against the conspirators. Finally, in April of 1478, the opportunity presented itself during the visit of another of the Pope's nephews to Rome, Raffaele Riario. What came to be known as the Pazzi Conspiracy that occurred in the Cathedral of Santa Maria in Fiore was actually a Plan B. The original plan was for the conspirators to poison the Medici brothers at a banquet they were to hold in honour of Raffaele Riario who had been made a cardinal at the ripe old age of 18. At the last moment, Giuliano de' Medici announced he was indisposed due to a hunting accident and would not be at the banquet. Everyone was then invited to mass the next day that would be said by the new cardinal as a thanks for the banquet. The conspirators decided that they would strike at the cathedral. The man who was supposed to kill Lorenzo, Giovanni Battista de Montesecco, refused to perform this sacrilegious act, and so substitutes needed to be found quickly. Who do you call if you want to pull off an assassination of a trained fighter usually surrounded by bodyguards? Well, two priests, of course. Antonio Maffei da Volterra and Stefano da Bagnone. Even a butcher would have been better. At least he would have been accustomed to using a knife. Anyway... The next day, the 26th of April, came. The conspirators saw Lorenzo de' Medici turn up with his retinue, but there was no sign of Giuliano. He was still indisposed and had decided to skip the service. There was nothing for it. Two of the conspirators, Francesco de Pazzi and Bernardo Bandini, ran off to go and get him and accompany him to church. Meanwhile, although it was a Sunday, the government of Florence, the official one to the Medici's crypto-government, was at work. The executive head of the Republic, Cesare Petrucci, was told that he had a visit from the Bishop of Pisa, Francesco Salviati. The gonfaloniere Petrucci sat in his office to await his visitor. Little did he know that the Bishop Salviati had come with a band of armed men to enact the other part of the conspiracy, the takeover of the city government. Salviati entered the office and let the door close behind him, locking it automatically from the inside and, most importantly, locking his co-conspirators out. Back at the cathedral, Bandini and Francesco Pazzi have been to get Giuliano and, with the excuse of helping him along, they have jokingly embraced him to make sure that he was not wearing any body armour under his clothes. He was not. The mass began, the two Medici brothers in separate parts of the church. Sources differ on when the attack against the brothers was supposed to kick off. Some say the moment in which the host was raised for the communion, others when the mass finished. Perhaps the latter was more plausible, 
when there was more confusion in the cathedral and it would have been normal for people to be moving around and making noise. In any case, Bernardo Bandini stabbed Giuliano, who immediately fell to the floor, with Bandini moving over towards Lorenzo. Then Francesco Pazzi fell upon the dying and possibly already dead Giuliano, stabbing him repeatedly and frantically, to the point that he even managed to stab himself. The would-be clergyman assassins, Antonio Maffei and Stefano Bagnone, moved against Lorenzo. Maffei first put a hand on his shoulder, which was a mistake. Lorenzo's instinct kicked in and he jerked away. All the assassins were able to do was wound him on the neck. Lorenzo whirled his cloak around over his left arm and wrapped it round to form a sort of shield. He drew his sword, keeping his attackers at bay. He then jumped over a wooden railing and now flanked by his supporters, made his way in front of the altar to the new sacristy protected by a heavy door. Bandini, who had struck the first blow on Giuliano, tried to follow but was headed off by another Medici man, Francesco Noli, who was killed for trying to defend Lorenzo. Bandini managed to get to Lorenzo and the others just in time to have the heavy bronze door of the sacristy closed in his face. They were safe. It was now time to tend to Lorenzo's wound. Fearing that the priest's blade may have been poisoned, another Medici man, Antonio Ridolfi, sucked the blood out of the wound. Lorenzo frantically asked about his brother. Those who knew did not have the heart to tell him. Lorenzo de' Medici had survived the attempt on his life. As chaos reigned inside the cathedral, the conspirators managed to blend in with the crowd and make their way out. It seemed to them they had managed to get away. For now. Francesco Pazzi, Giuliano's second assailant, made it back home. His self-inflicted wound needed tending to. His uncle, the head of the house, Jacopo Pazzi, was there and he knew he had to ride out and try to raise the city in support of the conspiracy, showing how little he understood about the mood of the Florentines at the time. He raced through the streets shouting, The people and liberty! He was not met with much enthusiasm and even cries of, The balls! The balls! Possibly an insult, or more likely, just showing support for the Medici and their family crest. He arrived at Piazza della Signoria and stood upon the Arengario, where public proclamations were read from, and proceeded again to shout out, Il popolo e la libertà, the people and freedom. He was met with boos from the crowd that had been called there by the Martinella Bell, and insults and stone throws down from the Palazzo della Signoria, where the government, where the government had managed to overcome the conspirators. Jacopo Pazzi saw the mood was not in his favour and raced to the Santa Croce gate and fled the city. Inside the government building, we had left one of the conspirators, Archbishop Francesco Salviati, locked in the room with the head of the Florentine government, the Gonfaloniere, a Medici man to the core, Cesare Petrucci. When asked what he wanted, all Salviati could do was stammer and look back at the door behind him. Suspicious Petrucci had gone out for a moment and sounded the alarm. Very soon, Salviati and all of the conspirators who had come to overthrow the government were captives. Not long after that, Salviati, an ordained bishop, was hanging by the neck outside one of the windows of the palace. A traitor's death.
Rather than take up Jacopo Pazzi's cry of the people and freedom, the Florentines now started to cry death to the traitors. They were angered by the sacrilegious attack on the Medici in the church, of course, but what really angered the freedom-loving Florentines was the third phase of the conspiracy, the fact that foreign troops were waiting outside the city to fall upon it. You will remember that the conspiracy had been supported by the Pope, the King of Naples, the Duke of Urbino, and of course, if there was a chance to give it to the Florentines, Siena was going to be in on it. The troops turned and left when they got news the conspiracy had failed to take out Lorenzo, but their presence there was proof enough of the Pazzi's guilt for the Florentines. A bloodbath began. Every family member, servant or supporter of the Pazzi was hunted down and often killed on the spot, sometimes hung, sometimes ripped apart. It became quite fashionable for a few days to decorate your street with body parts. For example, some enthusiastic Medici supporters adorned the Medici palace with a head on a spike and a piece of someone's shoulder. Francesco Pazzi was hauled out of his house as his wound was still being tended to and then hung in Piazza della Signoria. Two days after the attack in the church on the 28th of April, Jacopo de Pazzi was caught outside of the city trying to escape. Apparently, he told the peasants who had captured him that he would pay them to kill him on the spot. He was hit on the head and had to be taken back to the city, but he did not die allowing him then to be hung. On the 30th of April, Lorenzo had his brother buried in San Lorenzo in a ceremony attended by hundreds of citizens dressed in black, but also wearing hidden weapons, just in case. On the 1st of May, Giovan Battista di Montesecco, the man who had refused to kill Lorenzo in the cathedral, was captured. He confessed everything, and for his confession, he was granted a soldier's death by beheading and not hanging. His confession would later be published in August, but Lorenzo would keep out the big names, such as Ferrante of Naples and the Duke of Urbino, Federico da Montefeltro, with whom he hoped to patch things up. He would, and Montefeltro in particular, would be Florence's ally in the coming Salt War. Even in his grief, Lorenzo maintained his political savviness. On the 3rd of May, Lorenzo's actual attackers, Maffei and Bagnone, were captured. Their noses and ears were cut off, and then they too were hung. There was no escape for any of the conspirators. Bernardo Bandini, who had been the first to strike Giuliano, made it all the way to Constantinople, thinking the distance would keep him safe. But the long arm of the Medici followed him there too, and the Sultan had him arrested and packed off to Florence, where he too got the noose. Things then seemed to quiet down, but there was one more rather gruesome chapter to the story. As the days of May went by, it started to rain, and rain, and rain. Buckets, cats and dogs, you name it the people of Florence started to feel there was something supernatural about the rain, and they soon identified the reason. 
the body of Jacopo de Pazzi, head of a family who had stained a cathedral with a murder, known blasphemer and possible atheist, was buried in the family chapel inside the city walls. On the 15th of May, a group of citizens stormed the chapel, exhumed the body of Jacopo and relocated it outside the city walls. Then a group of boys thought they would have some fun with it, so they dug it up and started dragging it around the streets of Florence. When they got to the Pazzi residence, they hung it at the entrance, telling it to picchialuscio, bang on the door. The body was then thrown into the Arno River. In all of this, Lorenzo managed to technically keep his hands clean since most of the violence had been perpetrated by angry mobs and by the Signoria, the government of Florence, but we know who was controlling them. This marked the end of the Pazzi conspiracy, but not the struggle against the Pope, and it would put the Medici and the faith of the Florentines in them to a test that would perhaps be too much, even for Lorenzo the Magnificent. Thank you very much for listening. Grazie mille. Thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the second half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Julia G, Justin E, Mary T, Old John in Milwaukee, Orlando D, Kevin, Mark P, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Mella, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patrizia K, Philip B, Rachel, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Russell F, Scott L, Sean M, Shelby, Steve, and Tap Dance Down Under. And of course, the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level. Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, David L, Renat, David C, Oak, JW, Sen, David A, and newcomer, Karen D. Welcome, Karen, to our merry band of friends. If you would like to get in touch, please do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content and ad-free episodes, you can do so by going to www.ahistoryofitaly.com, clicking through to the support page and becoming a patron, or going directly to patreon.com forward slash ahistoryofitaly. Once again, thank you very, very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.